0: Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. I wonder what, what it means to be blessed. Uh, truth be told, we, we throw blessings around, we throw around blessings a lot in our day to day lives. If if somebody nearby you were to fire off a a, a sudden sneeze, you probably would find it difficult to stop yourself, especially in today's day and time, from, from praying a little prayer over that person. What happens when somebody nearby sneezes? What do you say? Bless you. We, we throw a blessing out when somebody sneezes. Well, do you ever wonder why we do that? It's almost, it's almost an ingrained part of our culture. It's, it's almost impossible to imagine somebody nearby sneezing and, and you not saying, bless you. Well, it was believed back in the 500s in Europe that a sneeze was the first sign of the plague. And so Pope Gregory commanded Christians at that time to respond to every sneeze with a blessing in the hopes that God would spare them from the plague. So maybe in today's coronavirus world, if somebody nearby coughs, maybe you should say, God bless you, in the hopes that perhaps God would spare them from the plague. And, and, and honestly, can you really have a home in the South and not have an old piece of barnwood or something with the word blessed? written out in script. Be honest. How many of you all have a sign, something like this, hanging somewhere in your home? That's right. That's right. And you probably got it at Hobby Lobby when it was 50% off, right? I know. I know. So this morning, let's talk about what it means to be blessed. Let's turn our attention back to the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5. We're going to work through the first couple of Beatitudes today. Last week, I challenged you to join with me in memorizing the Sermon on the Mount. I told my youngest child that I, I really wish that I had truly been walking with the Lord as, as a as a child because it would have been so much easier to memorize Scripture as a child than it is as a as a as a 40 plus individual. Uh, the The brain doesn't absorb that information quite like it did when I was young. But I I think a good strategy is to just each week memorize the texts that were. We're considering. And so this week is just three, three quick verses to, to memorize, work on it this week. And, and, uh, and if we do that, by the time we're finished, we'll actually have the whole thing memorized. So I would ask if you're here in the worship center with me that you would stand as we read God's word together from Matthew chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. God, I thank you for your precious words. I thank you for the precious words of this sermon that Jesus gave there on the mountainside. We ask that you might apply it to our lives, that we might walk in your blessings. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we begin to work our way through the portion of the Sermon on the Mount known as the Beatitudes, we need to understand what it truly means to be blessed. Some translations render this first word of each of these verses as happy. And while we certainly recognize that if you follow the wisdom contained in the Beatitudes that you're going to be someone who is generally happy— the reality is, is that's not the, the best word to use. This is probably one Greek word that you've heard if you've been in church any length of time. The word is makarios. Uh, now, of course we recognize that, that being blessed by God ought to render some degree of happiness. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Happiness, we understand, is, is fleeting. Happiness is, is very circumstantial. You can be happy right now. And 10 minutes later, you could be very unhappy. Imagine if, if you were sitting in the service today, happy to be back at church, excited to see people that maybe you've not seen since March. You're happy. You're glad you're here. And imagine that outside in the parking lot right now, somebody decided to come and use the walking track and they parked right next to your car. And when they got out of the car, they opened the door and put a gigantic crease right in the side of your automobile. You go out and you see the, the color of the paint of the car that was parked next to you imprinted in the door of your car. And suddenly your happiness that you experienced for being back in church today, excited to be with the people of God again, is suddenly tainted with the, 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 the lack of happiness. That now you've got a big crease in the door of your car and no one is around to take responsibility for it. Happiness is fleeting. Things take away our happiness, and the Beatitudes are much more substantive than just producing a fleeting emotion. The sense behind the word that we're looking at here actually gets to who we are more than how we feel. I really don't know that we give the word blessed the significance that it truly deserves. It's more than a sign that we hang in our home. In our minds, I think sometimes we treat the concept of being blessed as if it's some sense of divine, uh, just, a, just a, a pat on the back, a, a, a sense of good wishing from God. But in a, in a better way of understanding it, for example, Max Licato called the word blessed the applause of heaven the applause of heaven. But being blessed comes with this sense of of divine approval. I wonder this, when we seek God's blessing, are we truly seeking God's approval? When we ask God to bless this or bless that, we're actually asking God to approve of whatever it is that we are blessing. When Jacob wrestled with that divine messenger on the night before he met Esau, his brother, he told that divine messenger, I won't let go until you bless me. That night, Jacob was looking for more than just a holy attaboy. He was looking for more than just a pat on the back. Jacob was seeking that divine approval, that that divine blessing. So if we approach the Beatitudes with this attitude then the words of each of these statements should penetrate our very hearts. Who wouldn't want the approval of God? Who wouldn't want the approval of God? Now, the challenge for us comes when we phrase the question this way. Do we want God's approval above all else? Do we want God's approval above all else, above the approval of our employer, above the approval of our spouse, above the approval of our parents, above the approval of our children? Do I want God's approval more than I want Pastor Foster's approval, not because of my artwork, but because of of the character of God? Do I seek God's approval above all else? So what does the blessed life look like? What is the character of the life that is approved by God? Well, this is what the Beatitudes seeks to answer. So we would do very well to heed the wisdom that they present. So we begin with verse 3. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God of heaven. Now, sometimes we approach this as if we're just approaching a set of of pithy wisdom statements, that that all of these are individual ideas, individual statements that are self-contained, and I need to be poor in spirit, and I need to mourn, and I need to be meek, and I need to hunger and thirst for righteousness, that that if I'll just do all these things, I'll be in pretty good shape. But we need to understand that, that that's not exactly how this is structured together. We need to recognize that the Beatitudes are, are put together. They build upon one another. And so Jesus begins with this, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, we need to know what the poor in spirit is not. The poor in spirit is, is not about having a low estimation of oneself. Sometimes we feel like that if we are poor in spirit that we're to, we're to have low self-esteem, that we're not to, not to think very much of ourselves. But the fact of the matter is, is the Bible teaches that we are individuals created in the image and likeness of God. We are of inestimable value to a holy God. Isn't that amazing to stop and think about that you matter immensely to the creator of the universe. You matter so much that he went way out of his way to make sure that you could have an eternal home with him. You matter immensely to God. So if you matter immensely to God, you ought to matter to yourself too. So this is not about having a, a low estimation of one's worth. This is not about being shy or timid. You know, sometimes shy and timid people think that they're, they're poor in spirit. That's not what this is about. It's, it's not about prideful humility either. You've been around folks who have prideful humility. If someone declares to you that they are humble... Probably not the most humble person in the world If they have to announce to you that they're humble You probably aren't dealing with someone with a great deal of humility. That's what we call prideful humility and prideful humility is not humility at all It would be a very interesting experiment To kind of do a man-on-the-street interview take a microphone and a camera out on the street and and ask people to define what it means to be poor in spirit you go out to the, walk in, the the Walnut Street Bridge and just grab people as they're walking and say, hey, would you just describe for me what poor in spirit means? Chattanooga is the most church city in the country, and so everybody that on, that's on that bridge probably has, has heard the term poor in spirit before. So uh, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, first of all, we need to understand that word poor. We understand something of, of poverty, in our minds, we recognize poverty is an economic problem. Yesterday, we had the opportunity to, to pass out some boxes of food, and, and I took some guys over to uh, a, a very impoverished neighborhood here in Flintstone, and, and you see poverty is very real and, and very tangible. It's very touchable, and, and right at surface level when you're evaluating it, it, it appears to be a, a lack of resources. That if you could just have more money, more food, more this, more that, a better house, a better car, if you could just have those resources in line, you could, you could get rid of, of poverty. And a lot of people think that way, but we need to understand that poverty is more than just an economic problem. If, if you've really studied it, then you understand that, that poverty is, is more than just economics. There's a, there's a, a poverty of, 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 of culture that exists in so many ways. But here Jesus doesn't say blessed are the poor. He says blessed are the poor in spirit. And so this is where we tend to get lost. We think that he's talking about poverty as a lack of economics. That's not what he's dealing with here. He's talking about poverty as as, as something deeper than that. Here the word poor carries with it more than just that lack of material resources. The word here is a word picture and it carries with it a certain posturing. Poverty is a condition. We understand that. But when you think about the posture of absolute poverty, you might think of someone who has no other means of survival beyond begging. I find it interesting that one commentator suggested that the word poor in spirit, that the word, the, 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 a descriptive term needs to be added to the front of that. That if, so if you write in your Bibles, uh, right in front of poor in spirit, write the word beggarly. Beggarly. That's a word you don't use every day. You're looking mighty beggarly today. Someone who is beggarly is someone who, who is at such a level of destitution and poverty that they cannot survive beyond the graces and kindness of another. Someone who, who doesn't have any resources for food, any resources for clothing. Someone whose only means of survival is that somebody somewhere will give them something to eat, will give them a, a, a small token of, of money to spend. Someone who has no means of anything beyond begging. I think we would agree that that's probably the, the, the worst level of poverty that you could reach. Where your only means of survival is that someone else would show kindness to you. Think about that for just a second. Their very existence rests upon the kindness of others. The grace of others. We combine that with the qualifier that Jesus uses. Blessed are those who are beggarly poor. Not in economics, though. But who are beggarly poor in spirit. Now we start to understand what he's talking about here. Poor in spirit refers to someone who understands that their spiritual condition is so bankrupt. Their spiritual condition is so bleak that their spiritual resources are so null and void that the only way that they can possibly survive is if they have help from an outside source. That they have help from someone else. That someone shows them kindness. You see, when we put it in these terms, we can begin to see that the foundation of the Beatitudes, the first blessed condition that Jesus gives here, the foundation of the Beatitudes is really and truly not about our economic condition, but it is about our absolute and total dependence upon a holy God. We see this poverty of spirit illustrated perfectly over in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. We read these words. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thusly, God, I thank you that I am not like these other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went down to his house justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee was completely confident in his own spiritual merit, but the tax collector knew that his heart was absolutely bankrupt. Only one showed true poverty of spirit. Don't miss this. You don't get to heaven without poverty of spirit. You see, if you approach the cross with any sort of self-righteousness or any sort of self-sufficiency, you will miss it completely. If you come to the cross under the impression that your merit will earn you anything at that place, you have missed the righteousness of Jesus that is ready to be bestowed upon you. There are countless people who fill our churches each and every single week, who walked an aisle or who prayed a prayer, but they do not have the poverty of spirit that Jesus speaks of here. They're living their life with the understanding that they have some kind of merit within them that makes them approved by God. But the very nature of the condition of this beatitude, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be approved by God, you must first recognize how bankrupt you are in spirit and how absolutely and utterly dependent upon him you are for salvation. Not only do we have this initial recognition of our poverty of spirit that leads us to the cross as we continue in our walk with God, we need a continual reminder of our bankrupt condition. That's what leads to our growth. It's what leads us daily to die to self and live for Christ. The old hymn gets this exactly right. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The second beatitude, again, is not independent of itself. It builds upon the first. And mourning is not about our demeanor. Some people have treated this beatitude like Christians ought to have a sad disposition in order to experience God's blessing. Charles Spurgeon wrestled with this. He once remarked that, that some preachers like to behave like they have their neckties twisted around their very souls. I've heard more than a few people have a modern take on that, that some Christians behave as if they were weaned on a dill pickle. That's why it's important for us to understand that the Beatitudes are a cohesive unit, not a list of interesting proverbs. If we recognize that these are building upon one another, then we need to understand how mourning is connected to the poverty of spirit. And our traditional understanding of mourning results in God's blessings, then we should just look for opportunities to be sad so that we could be blessed. If I'm sad, God will bless me. If I grieve, God will bless me. I need to look for opportunities to, to be miserable so I can experience the blessing of God. That's not what he's saying here. The, the context of verse 3 helps us to explain the paradox that exists in verse 4. When we realize just how bankrupt we are from a spiritual standpoint, then we have this realization that ought to result in sorrow. Mourning should be our response to our spiritual bankruptcy. We recognize how poor in spirit we are. That should cause us great grief, great consternation. One author said it this way. The first beatitude is the intellectual component. The the notion that I am a bankrupt before a holy God. The second beatitude is the emotional component. The first is recognition. The second is response. And just like the first beatitude, listen to me, church, you don't get to heaven without mourning. You don't get to heaven without mourning. What do we mean? We're talking about mourning over our sinful condition. Mourning over our spiritual bankruptcy. I would ask you this morning to consider. Does your sin cause you to grieve does your sin cause you sorrow not the consequences of your sin too many times we're like children who've been caught in disobedience they aren't so upset that they broke the rules rather the fact that they got caught recognition of our spiritual bankruptcy and our sin ought to break our hearts and ought to result in sorrow. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. When we are truly grieving over our sin, when we are truly grieving over our bankruptcy, when we are truly experiencing the grief that is required of us, when we understand what is within us, then that grief leads to repentance. But when we simply grieve because of the circumstances of our sin, Paul says that grief leads to death. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we mourn our sins, Jesus says that we shall be comforted. You know the greatest comfort in the world comes from the knowledge that we've been forgiven. Can you imagine the number of sleepless nights that you might have that if somehow God changed his mind and came to you today and said, "You know what? I'm revoking my forgiveness." That doesn't happen. But if somehow that were to take place, can you imagine how hard it would be to go to sleep tonight? If God suddenly came to you and said, I'm revoking all the forgiveness that you've received. Can you imagine how troubled your soul would be if you suddenly lost the forgiveness of a holy God? I don't imagine that I would sleep at all. I imagine that I would fall to my face, and cry out to God to change his mind, to restore unto me that forgiveness that he were to revoke. Thankfully, that's not the case. He doesn't take away the forgiveness that he's extended to us. Well, how do we know? This is where this gets kind of exciting. I want you to hang with me for just a minute as we string some things together. Because again, the, the best way to understand the Bible is to let the Bible explain itself. And, and the best way to, to, to get more out of the Bible is to, is to start putting the pieces together. And when you can start putting the pieces together, you have this appreciation for what God is saying in his word that's, that, that's, that goes way beyond just the, the hunt a verse and read a verse and, and just stay there, that, that idea. So hang with me. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The root word for comforted in the Beatitudes is the same root word that Jesus uses over in John chapter 14 to describe the Holy Spirit. Remember over in John chapter 14, Jesus tells his disciples, don't worry, there's a comforter coming. There's a comforter coming. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the, the comforter, the one, the paraclete is the Greek word that is used there. The Holy Spirit is the comforter that is coming to the disciples in Jesus' absence. Well, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul says this in chapter 1 of, Ephesia, of the letter to the, to the church at Ephesus, verse 13. He says to the church there, In him you also. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation believed in him. And listen to what he says. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the comfort we receive when we grieve our sins It's not some sort of pietive care that simply masks the symptoms. It's not just a pill that you take that that makes the pain go away for a little while. Instead, the comfort we receive when, when we mourn our sins, we are comforted by the one who is called the comforter. And the comforter serves to confirm the work of God in our lives. The first two Beatitudes tell us something that is absolutely essential. If you want to be blessed by God, it's not about a set of actions and works that we perform. We receive God's blessing when we acknowledge our bankrupt spiritual condition, and when we experience sorrow for our sin that leads to repentance. These first two beatitudes define the heart that is ready to receive the gospel. This morning there's three things I would ask you to remember. First, if you haven't noticed... The character that Jesus is describing here is not really welcome in our modern world. You you find that that we live in this world where where the idea of being poor in spirit, the world is really antithetical to that. Because the world in which we live says, I can do it my way. It's about me, it's about myself. I can declare my own truth. I can be whatever I want to be. I am the, the Lord of my own self. That is not poverty of spirit. That is pride and arrogance. And it is, it is a hand-shaking, fish shaking threat to a holy God. So if you find yourself living in a world that seems to not be very comfortable with this Christian ideal of poverty of spirit, that's okay. You should expect that. Secondly, these are areas where we should continue to experience growth. Yes, there is an initial poverty of spirit that brings us to the cross where we have to confess, Lord, I am bankrupt in my my flesh. There is nothing within me that can earn your favor. I need you to save me. That is an initial poverty of spirit. But listen, it doesn't stop there. I think if you've walked with Christ any length of time, you understand that your life continues and you continue to be spiritually. It's not in me. It's in him. It's not my merit. It's not my skill. It's not my goodness. It's His goodness. It's His skill. It's, it's His merit. It's His righteousness. And, and listen, it is an initial grief over our sin that calls us to the cross to seek forgiveness. But as you walk with Christ, you continue to grieve your own sin, but I, I hope that we continue to grieve the sins of the world in which we live. You know, you saw that with Jesus. Jesus didn't have personal sin to grieve, but Jesus certainly grieved the sins of the world. There's that passage where he is nearing Jerusalem, and he looks out over Jerusalem, and he weeps. He weeps over a city that says the city didn't know the time of its visitation. Jesus grieved the sins of the world. Church, the sins of our communities should cause us grief. The sins in which we see our world living in should hurt our hearts and should deeply burden us. Not for political change, not for government change, but for a gospel change. Because the only thing that will solve the problems in our community is not politics, it's not government, it's gospel. It's gospel-preaching churches, it's gospel-believing Christians. It is men and women who know the poverty of spirit and who grieve and mourn their sinfulness that will bring change to a lost and dying world. And thirdly, if you're somebody who deep down inside, you understand that you are ultimately and totally trusting in your own merit to get it right. Maybe you've never really felt sorrow for your sinful condition. I want to give you an opportunity today to experience God's blessing through poverty of spirit and through mourning your sin. You have that opportunity today to come to the cross not to say, Lord, I deserve to be here. Because actually we deserve to be on the cross. Lord, I, I've got these things going for me. It won't get you to heaven. What gets us to heaven is an acknowledgement of our sin and a confession of his righteousness and trusting in his shed blood His death, His burial, His resurrection that can restore a right relationship with us between us and the Lord and can indeed give us the condition of being blessed. Would you pray with me please? God, I thank you for the Beatitudes for the condition of being blessed not by what we've done but by who you are. Lord, I pray that if there's any in our midst, any who are online who are struggling today, that they would know they can be blessed. Come to the cross. Place their faith and trust in Jesus alone. Be saved and be blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.